0: Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Conscious Capitalist with myself, Timothy Henry, my partner at making the world a better place through business, Raj Sodia. Last week, we spoke about the journey that Gervais Warner took Macy Group, the largest business, the Caribbean Basin on, to become a conscious business. It was fascinating to hear an ex-McKinsey partner and a graduate of Harvard Business School talk about what that process was like for him. This week, we dive into what is probably the most meaningful dialogue that Raj and I have had on this podcast. First, Gervais talks about his own journey and how he grew to become a conscious leader. In the second part, we jumped into what is frankly an important dialogue that needs to be had. We talk in a very candid way about race, trust, and belonging in the workplace, and the role that a conscious leader has in creating a healing organization. We hope you enjoy this episode, and we hope you are as touched by it as both Raj and I were.
2: Let's start with your uh, your, your childhood. You know, one of the things that attracted me or drew me to you uh, is I have a little bit of roots in that region. Right, we lived in Barbados when yes. I was seven years old, from the age of seven to nine, and I had never been back in all these years. And uh, when I met you a few years ago in uh, St. Louis, and so you were visiting Barry, so we had that instant connection and. As I said, there's something about the Caribbean way of life and being that really attracted me to uh, me to you. Uh, so tell me about uh, your life growing up in the uh, island of Trinidad. What was that like? Yeah, sure, sure. Right. I'm very happy we were able to get you back to Barbados,
1: and I hope that uh, you don't stay away for quite as many years before we get you back again. Not uh, an option. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up in Trinidad. Uh, interesting, uh, my. Dad was, uh, I guess, a, a public servant. He worked for the uh, Industrial Development Corporation, which is a company that um, uh, helped Trinidad and Tobago with different industrial estates and promote investment in Trinidad and Tobago. My mom was an interior designer. So yeah, we were we were uh, sort of a decent middle-class family. My father was the first in his family to go to university. He actually studied at Oxford. Um, and so education is very important for us, and, uh, you know, doing well in school was like, you know, that was number one, Yeah, uh, you know, sport, whatever thing uh, that was like, you know, way down the list, you know, uh, so, so yeah, so, so, so we grew up, you know, kind of knowing that we were going to go to university was never a question with my eldest, um, uh, the eldest of us, my sister um, reach university age, you know, when you just pick what you were going to study and you, you went to university, it wasn't a, a you know, a question about if, or it was, which one and what we were you going to study really is the way that we grew up. Um, we grew up relatively carefree Trinidad was quite safe at the time, you know, playing in our neighborhood running around in Hills. And, um, yeah, yeah, fortunately I, I, I think because of, of my dad, we, did a little travel. We went to the States a, a few times. So I spent uh, a year and a half, maybe just seven to eight, uh, living in um, Boston. So that was an interesting experience while we did an MBA at, at Sloan School at MIT. Uh, then we came back to Trinidad and you know did high school in Trinidad. And I think that um, you know, four of us, we were very tight as kids. I think just to, that was turning university age, I I started to have this kind of sense of wanting to have purpose. It was a very well, weird thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the time I left university, I had discovered the book "The On Purpose Person." So my friends, my friends, my friends would like remember this as a young person. I would often talk about purpose, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think that part of what shaped me was, like, failing. <laughs> I, I failed my way to where I am. <laughs> um,
2: I don't think that's huge is, So what was the name of that book? What was the book that the on
1: purpose? You? On Purpose Person. Oh wow, I've nope. never heard of that. Oh. Yeah, it's just a little, little book, book, and it One just point talks point. about, you know, turning on. Like, every time you turn a which are you're on purpose, it's just a delightful oh. little book. Um, Anyway, Raj, my, my, my childhood, um, as I said, I, I think the, the real form of things that I do remember is that in terms of that, um, we have this system that you do, this exam called, back when I do common entrance, at 11 years old to determine what high school you would go into. And, um, you know, my sister passed for first choice, my brother passed for first choice but it came to be. I didn't pass for my first choice. I passed for the third, the third choice. I was in the school that I wanted to go to. Uh, I went to register at the school, and um, I don't know this. This is, this is the age at which you know, like you remember big decision you took for yourself. I I decided I'm in the line to register. And I'm not. I'm not doing. It. I mean, by the way, I mean I, I cried for like days because I failed this exam and I was embarrassed and you know, all my other friends got in and I was going to go to this choice school. And I my a friend from, from, uh, the, 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 primary school that I went with was in the registration line with me. And years later, he reminded me that this happened, that I was in the line and I turned around from the line and I met home. and I said, I would do the exam over again. And, uh, I, like, I made a decision that I was going to be smart that I that, I was going to be on the top of the class. And so said, so done. I passed these are funny stories. You know, that's been my life. Like I, I, have always said I kind of had to work hard. I applied to I wanted to be an engineer. I applied to Princeton. I really wanted to go to Princeton. I applied to Penn and I applied to MIT. Um, I thought I had done very well in my A-levels. I did pretty decent FIT. I got rejected from two and waitlisted listed the pen. So here was I again. All my friends went off to university. <laughs> I'm at home because I had no backup. <laughs> <laughs> then, you know, so I waited another year and reapplied, and I finally got my A-level results, and I won a government scholarship, so the government, I, I got to go to on a government scholarship, and yeah, Raj, that's kind of, you know, yeah. how, I, how, I, how I ended up being an engineer and then realized that, you know, engineers at AT&T or Bell Labs don't make decisions, it's those guys in suits who have MBAs, so I said, I, well, let me go do an MBA. Um, and, uh, I did an MBA and, and I, 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 yeah, been in the search of meaning and purpose and consulting, this is like, you go around and help companies. I used to tell my kids, I'm a doctor for companies. That's my explanation of consulting. If <laughs> nobody could explain what we did at McKinsey. And, um, yeah, I, I just, I just I was always great with people and friends and love people and, you know, going into business and, and working in teams and understanding the importance of sort of building a relationship with clients. That's kind of what led me in this personal journey to be where I am today. Discovering your book was a breakthrough for me. So
2: that's a little bit about my childhood.
1: So cool. That's why I say I feel my way to where
2: I am. That's great. So you, you went to uh, Pennsylvania, then you went to Harvard Business School, yeah, And then at some point you, you you came to the Caribbean with McKinsey.
1: You were heading up. I did. I did. Up. I held up the practice in the Caribbean with uh, I, I So I was at McKinsey for 11 years. After 9 years, I moved back to Trinidad with my family and joined the Caracas office. And I was at that time working in Caracas or so Venezuela, Colombia, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, and a little bit in Trinidad. So I was lying around the English and Spanish speaking Caribbean, and what they call the Andean Pact, another part of Latin America, doing various types of engagements for clients.
2: And that was a very conscious decision to come back home in a way that you wanted to. Yes. Be part it, of it. you were ask my friends, um, I would
1: have really sort of had a put for myself from before I went to Harvard, um, which was to make a real contribution to the development of our Caribbean. And I always felt that my purpose in life was to be a part of helping our region our people, you know, move forward and and develop. And uh, that I always had a plan to return to the Caribbean. I was never tempted to stay in the States or, you know, it was good for my career and it was helpful to pay off the loans. But uh, as soon as the right opportunity presented itself, and I would all I was always looking for the right opportunity. Um, you know, moving my kids to the grow near their cousins and their grandparents, our aunts, our uncles was important, so they had a sense of upbringing like we had,
2: and that was very important to us, my wife and I. Um, so yeah, and then uh, this elite education that you had, uh, especially in business. How did that gel with your purposeful way of thinking about life, which seemed you already had? Well, you know, like that. The first I mean, Yeah, know, it's right. funny you ask that, uh,
1: Raj, because yeah. I was just on a, a McKinsey alumni um, Bob Stelzle, the the managing partner. had was a you know a great idea. To have this you know webinar and I know, where a number of the alumni would come in and talk about it. and. Um, now, when I joined McKinsey and so i will be interviewing, you know, the, the firm was really, really, really just deep in impact and having impact with companies and impact on the planet and making a huge difference. And uh, I, I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was perfect because, you know, the work we did was purposeful and we, we tried to make sure that you know, any, anything we did was substantial and significant for our clients. And so it, it really did speak to who I was and, and what I wanted to do as a professional. Um, and, and yeah, you could, you could do well, but more importantly, you know, I got great satisfaction from seeing our clients uh, solve problems that they couldn't figure out before or get things done or unveil strategies or, or open up a whole new path for them that were before unseen. Getting clarity on issues where they were, were confused, I was hugely gratifying to me, um as the place to work. So so I think that McKinsey was very good at that and I could really start to see how you could do bit good through business uh when yeah. I was at McKinsey. Um but I, I was doing it for a lot of clients that I didn't necessarily relate to because they weren't from our region. And I had this real issue with the fact that, A, McKinsey was so expensive, B, we weren't in the region at all. That you know, in a place where I think we needed the most help. McKinsey wasn't present. You know, from a very junior, I was an engagement manager two years in. I'd go back to Trinidad and I'd talk to companies trying to find ways to bring McKinsey to, to the Caribbean. I'd, I'd been doing that from, you know, two years in at McKinsey and eventually I got an opportunity to do it formally. And I was successful. I, I I was able to bring McKinsey to the Caribbean. A, a lot of Hucko in the Caribbean now use McKinsey to have an office in Panama with 200 people serving the Caribbean and Central America. and uh, You know, that was that was something to and do before I started pounding Bainwood down there. Mm.
2: And then at some point, you decided to leave McKinsey and were you recruited into Massey? That too? No, I had to go find a job, Raj. Raj, um... <laughs>
1: What happened was uh uh it was December two thousand and three. My daughter my daughter's tenth birthday. Uh, and I had been traveling, you know, every week I'd fly out and spend from Monday to Thursday, out and come back and on Thursday, serve a client and turn it out on Friday or sometimes I have to go to an office uh, over there or Caracas. Um I started to realize that, you know, in seven years, my daughter was going to go to university. I was pretty sure she wasn't going to come back home and I wasn't around to be there during the week, help her with schoolwork and counsel her. And I just decided that Christmas vacation, that it was time. I now needed to work in Trinidad. And so I went back after the Christmas vacation. I told my partners, you know, I decided to leave the But like, what? We've been two weeks ago. You left. We were all good. What do you mean? You come back and you decide you're going to leave the world. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I'm going to leave in June. So we have lots of time to transition. And, um, yeah, I was the leader of the work in the Caribbean and, you know, started to have some success with a number of prior situations. And uh, two associate principals who are now directors at McKinsey, who, uh, you know, were in the window to become partners. And I sort of had to c- try to continue to make sure that they were ready. Uh, and, uh, um, yeah, I found the job. I found this job at Neil & Massey, and I worked at Neil & Massey. I love the CEO, Bernard Right, who is a fantastic, fantastic human being. Um, smart, but gentle, caring, funny. Um, yeah, just one of those people who you respect, and you just love to be around. I love this team. I met, you know, people, by right? As a McKinsey consultant, I have done some workshops with them. I thought the team was smart people, good people, dedicated. It was one of the organizations where there was somewhat of a meritocracy. It was the family-owned business. Um, It was a multinational organization where you know, then a top-off and then you can't continue to grow. Um, And it was a big company. You could have real impact with this company. You could take this company places. You could transform a lot of lives touched a lot of people in terms of the footprint of this uh, organization. And that was really attractive to me. And that's and he was looking for a successor and uh, he didn't have an internal successor. You know, he thought that I might be someone who could succeed him. And that's how I came to be at massive. no now, massive.
2: So, ways uh, as we round out this bubbly conversation with you, I want to go back to the person. Recently, he yeah. went on a trip to Africa, to Nigeria, and also Ghana. And, and it led to some awakenings for you and need for certain kinds yeah, of uh, that you became. So if you would uh, if you would share some of that, I think it's very powerful what you've been going through.
1: Yeah, so um, yeah, I, I think you know you're mature with, with, with time and certain things become more and more distinguished. So you know I, I think that part of our journey at Massey in, in creating this, Caribbean heart, and um, what we love about the Caribbean heart is: if you ever come to the Caribbean, uh, you you experience it. It's not just that it's warm and sunny; the people are uh, they're, they're they're related. They like to have fun and joke. The music the rhythm is rhythmic. There's, th- There's something about the Caribbean that is absolutely unique in terms of on the planet. And Raj, what? we worked hard at Massey to do is to basically move away all the stuff that we learned, that were taught, structures that were put in place, that obfuscated the real essence of who we are in our Caribbean heart. And what that was for us is that we were all colonies, we were all co- islands that were colonized, and the native people of these countries or islands were wiped out. And who's here are people from the class of rulers who colonized us, and the people who were brought here mostly against their will as slaves, and then uh, for people from East India, from what we call India India, as indentured laborers. And it's been a few hundred years of this social, I can't even call it experiment, this this social melting pot that we have here in the Caribbean. And we did the work at Massey to push some of this stuff aside so the true heart and rhythm and essence of who we are as a people could come shining through. But when I went to Ghana, and this is what I know you're pointing to, Raj, I had the opportunity to visit uh, these slave castles, where slaves were yep. basically ordered up and prepared, and I, I use the word prepared deliberately to be yeah. shipped across the Atlantic to go work in plantation yep. and I got a sense of the, of the conditions under which these people sure. were kept yep. and. The atrocious, horrifying, horrifying yeah. beating in a cell where you defecated, urinated, ate, slept, vomited in the same place, bled in the same place for months before you then were sent out on this you know point of return, and family separated with men raped. And right above every at every castle I visited, there there's a church on site that's built above cell. And so you had whether it was uh, the the because uh, uh, the UK the Anglican Church, or whether it's the Catholic Church for the Spaniards or the uh, Dutch had some federal Christian church. Um, so you got parishioners coming to church, and beneath them there were screams of terror, the smell was horrible, and the churches had these doctrines about, well, you know, they're not really human, they don't have a soul, or really it takes four of them to make a real human being, or they're the descendants of cursed people. They have different dogmas that they taught their parishioners, so they could be okay with coming to church above these slaves. Yeah, so yeah. This was such an atrocity that went on over 200 years, not five years, not ten years, not 200 years. Yeah. And so you have us diaspora of African descent in United States, Brazil, Latin America, the Caribbean, big time. And and um, when I was On my way back from this visit, I was reading Raj's new new book, Uh, "Awaken the Journey to um, a Life of Purpose and Inner Peace." Uh, that's a good plug there for you, Raj, (laughs) and healing. Uh And yes, yes. And I was in the section where he talked about going back to his village to uh, heal this collective trauma that people from his Uh village. And I was just struck for the first time in my life by this revelation that, you know, that's it. People of African descent in Africa, diaspora, we all have this multi-generational trauma. Yeah. That's a collective trauma. That's never been healed. Yeah. And there's, no conversation about healing it. No. Then, I don't know where you're from, but you're a Caucasian man. One of the things that I was absolutely clear about when I went there, cause yeah. David mm-hmm. O'Brien is a white right man who's an executive at Matthew. He was with us, but he actually left before. I was the only one who went. There. And I wondered what it, the experience would have been like for him. Uh-huh. And I think it would, I don't think that he would be able to make it through the tour. Yeah. It's, it It, it would just be too painful. Yeah. And he's O'Brien, he's Irish, so he's the United Kingdom. I, I'm not sure. Because it, it wasn't every Caucasian, because, you know, they didn't have Danes and stuff that were there. But there was the UK, the Spaniards, the French, the Portuguese, you know, the yeah. the, the, the colonizers from from, 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 from Europe. Yeah. Um, this is a very, very difficult subject. subject Yeah, and I could get it. I, I, in that visit, I could understand why people don't want to talk about it. Mm. Because the shame for the royals, the shame for descendants of who benefited Yep. from this trade, and their descendants have benefited from the ancestral position that that, did. but The shame of that, I think, is unbearable. I, I nobody wants to do that. No, in fact, people mm-hmm. don't want to admit it happened. Right? <laughs> no, well, no, the, no, 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 that, that—that's the
0: part that really gets me—is the lack yeah. of acknowledgement yeah. of what fact, a let's cruel, change the story. Cruel, yes, cruel process this was and then because they don't acknowledge the cruelty and the inhumanity of it they don't want to take even begin to have a discussion about what the consequences Absolutely. have been for Absolutely. generations of people who yeah. have borne the brunt of this uh in, in their in their history and then want to sort of say Ready? well that was that was 200 years ago that wasn't dust get over it that wasn't me
1: yeah I mean get just over such, it already yeah yep so, 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 the relevance to to, to Matthew and our organization is, you know, we're a force of good, <laughs> right? And there is this collective trauma, and it's out there. I can't unsee it. I know, acknowledge it. And there are all sorts of complications. Africans were capturing and enslaving Africans to trade them. Uh, there, there are lots of things that we, uh, uh, as a as a race, have done. You know, the continent itself is so disorganized, but the trauma is there, and there's no sure. conversation about the trauma to heal it. And um, I think it's it's worth pursuing. I, I know I have it. You know, i was sharing with Raj one of the things I recognize is that you know, I for all that I've accomplished expect. To be treated less than. I, and I it, when it happens, I have mastered a way to react to it that is productive and defensive for me. But when it happens, it doesn't surprise me. I live in the world where I expect that. Yeah, and it's, it happens. It happens. You know, if I you know show up in the United States and I am yeah. uh, dressed in a particular way, and I start to walk around, uh, uh, a luxury store, you know, I'm going to be looked at in a particular way and follow it. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I
0: think it's so powerful. You know, one of the, you know, my daughter spent some time in Ghana and was, has told me about her experience of going and seeing the slave castles and things. And, um, you know, and what, well, and the parallel I draw is I, you know, if you've been to Auschwitz and you've seen the scale of evil. Absolutely, and you feel it in your blood. I mean, even thinking about it still makes my skin crawl. We need to have people understand the visceral evil Absolutely. of what went on. And we need to have monuments and places where people can go and say, this was an unspeakable evil and Absolutely. never again. And Absolutely. until we get to that point of acknowledging that and creating experiences, so many people of my color, um, are going to sort of, well, oh no, we're good people. It's nothing to do with us, but yeah. I think Raj yeah. has been really good about truth and reconciliation <laughs> until we get to the truth, there can't yeah, be yeah. reconciliation. It's really difficult. Yeah. And yeah, and I'm curious, like, well, like what, 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 what is the message that comes out for you from this experience as a business leader? When we get into these discussions with executives in, you know, let's say American firms, well, well, what's the message here about how to, how to operate in this
1: space? Yeah. So I think at this point in time, and I'm waiting for different messages to reveal themselves to me, but at this point in time, I think uh, awareness is a great place to start and being able to speak about it. Uh, so this is the second time I'm speaking in some form of a, a, a recording that will be more public than just my friends and family about the experience. And I, I think that the more the average regular people can talk about this experience and the fact that, you know, yeah, I feel traumatized. Yeah, I, I have it. I, I mean, it's not as totally. bad as it might be for other people. And I've adjusted, I think, fairly well. But yeah, I have it. My daughter has it. She does it in New York. Uh my son has it in a way. Um yeah, I, I think if you're gonna be honest with yourself, we're all about who uh, have Africa descent have it in some formal fashion and it then shows up. Uh and, and then we complain about, you know, unproductive behavior and why can't they do this and why can't they do that? Uh, It's like, you know, somebody comes back from from Afghanistan and they've seen horrendous things and you know, you Five months, six months, two years later, they still have recurring dreams or whatever. And you, you know, eventually you say, Well, come on, guy, it's been five years. You get over this thing, you know? You're done. That's not how trauma works, right? <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> and,
1: um, I think bringing some understanding just, to it. Sorry, go ahead. And run. No, please, please finish your talk. I just think bringing some understanding to it, bringing some compassion to it, I think uh, we'll, we'll begin to leave the opportunity for healing to happen that's so i i just think i can talk to more people and the more the more people can talk about it plainly and simply and 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 um empathetically uh i i think we'll get we'll get progress um and i think that that's important particularly in the environment i see emerging in the united states where um you know it, it we're we're not actually moving to denial and changing the story which is really Quite unhelpful. You you have the opposite impact.
2: Right? Yeah, and I think healing begins with this kind of conversation and this kind of openness uh, that you've shown and you are showing. And I really think this is going to start. It's going to lead to something quite significant because the need for healing is not just on one side. There's also you know the people who inflicted this also have carry their own burden. You know the ancestral guilt of some kind. That's a, that's a trauma in itself as well, and the healing can only happen. Both sides come together to acknowledge, right, at what has happened, and and that's the power, that's the beauty and the power of the present moment. That in the present moment, we have the capacity to heal them if we show up in the right way, and therefore heal in the present. We cannot heal in the present without. That's as we've said. That's in the U.S. It's like don't look back, only look forward. Talk about today and you know, and tomorrow. What happened in the past is gone. No, it's not gone. It's still there. The wounds are still there. Right? The wounds. And, you know, not only you know, the direct experience, but through epigenetics, we know that it's impacting all of us, what happened right. in our lineage. So that's a really powerful conversation that I'm really grateful that uh, Gervais, you are stepping into, I'm doing that in a public way. And I look forward, forward to con- for that to continue and for us to think about how we can amplify that in the world and bring about genuine healing at scale. So that, yeah. that's an exciting part of the next journey next chapter
0: so just before we get off that subject i guess the question i have is i'm always interested in the practical like okay what is the message here for conscious leaders of businesses that want to at least begin this acknowledgement or begin to understand how it affects how they think about people development inside their organization so i mean that's the part where you know at one level, you know, practically, what do you do if you're an organization with 10,000 people or 20,000 people, and you want to sort of go down, you want to acknowledge this. Any guidance on what that means practically?
1: Yeah. Um, so, and the, and the corporate will, uh, I mean, specifically in the United States of America, because I think, um. You have different challenges in, in, in Europe, where I think, quite frankly, the epicenter of the slave trade, right? That's where those are the countries that were engaging in it. Uh, it's interesting, because the United States is a relatively new country by that standard, um, though settled by, largely by Europeans, yeah. and um, benefited from the slave trade, the latter part of it themselves. Uh, But in the United States, the sole uh, question about affirmative action, I find very interesting. Um, I actually have no idea whether I benefited from affirmative action or not. I did go to the University of Pennsylvania. I did go to Harvard Business School. I was a partner at McKinsey & Company. But as I know, I got the right gritted. I worked my ass out (laughs) right (laughs) I was from Trinidad, right, right? So so for me, affirmative action was something that America was doing to try to provide a pathway to equity for a, a group of people who were severely disenfranchised. And it's just, whether you think affirmative action is right or wrong and whether it should continue or it shouldn't continue. If you're in the corporate world and you're reflecting on your diversity program, I think it's really important as a corporate leader, to recognize that there is this group of people who are still carrying some form of trauma. And anything you can do for those who are in your organization to create a space where there could be honest conversation and genuine healing within your organization is going to make you... Better, faster, and stronger. I worked in the United States for 19 years or went to school and worked. And in any workplace, there is a strain between people of color and the majority. Well, Caucasian or right. white, yep. some companies are better at it, but it's there. It's beneath the surface. We don't talk about it. Um, No, some of my best friends are African-American. You know? Um, (laughs) But I think that that, that journey, you create a safe space where you'll find that your team will become deeper, better, faster, closer, sharper decision-making because it's just going to pull people into a a, a conversation of authenticity that We'll, have, we'll pay dividends with them being able to be authentic in other places in the business that uh, you, know, you, 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 you could be missing out on. So I think it's an issue that if you, if you wanted to actually use it to create a conversation that provided some healing in your Wait. organization, you would have significant dividends in terms of productivity, in terms of team morale, and the culture of your organization by
2: actually being willing to go there.
0: I love that. That's a beautiful, beautiful response. Thank you.
2: Just so grateful for who you are and what you stand for, and and uh, most excited about what you will be doing uh, going forward. So thank you so much. We know we're, you're, you're going to be at the Conscious Capitalism CEO Summit this year. I look forward to our. I look forward to it. Again, thank you so much for joining us
0: today. Well, well, thank you. Thank you so much. And And a big thank you to our listeners. And if you've enjoyed today's show, please go over to Apple iTunes or podcast and leave us a rating and give us some feedback. And wherever you're listening to it, hit the subscription button. And special thanks to Tech Sounds for their production and to Technology de Monterey for their sponsorship of this program. Thank you all, and we'll see you next
1: week.